from WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The art of baseball has added meaning for Richard Sullivan. Later this hour, the former Atlanta Braves player and MLB pitcher will tell us about his paintings. First... It's almost Halloween. While things may look a little different this year due to pandemic protocols, we are getting in the spooky spirit here at City Lights. Along with costumes, candy, and fall weather, music plays an important role in this festive holiday. WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart is with us to explore some less scary soundtracks. Scott, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Lois. It's so great to be here. Happy Halloween. And as you know, Halloween is one of my favorite musical holidays. There's just so much great music from horror films and a lot of classical music that's kind of been co-opted from gothic tales and chilling mythology and creepy literature and poetry. Well, it sounds like this year you're going to take a different approach because life itself is so scary. Are we going to be a little lighter in tone? Yeah, I thought so. Uh, Normally, we might check out epic horror music from classic movies like Halloween or The Shining or Nightmare on Elm Street or The Omen, any number of super effective and chilling soundtracks that really seal the deal when we're watching scary movies. But I figured that between Halloween and the pandemic and the upcoming election, there was enough scary stuff in our lives. So I've decided to check out music from Halloween movies that are a little bit less frightening. Well, since music has such a profound effect on our emotions while we're watching movies, let's hear what you picked for a fun and festive Halloween playlist. from the 1985 comedy mystery film Clue, based on the board game of the same name. This movie had an incredible ensemble cast of all-stars, including Eileen Brennan, Tim Curry, the magnificent Madeline Kahn, Christopher Lloyd, and Leslie Ann Warren. This, Lois is in my pantheon the same way that Blazing Saddles is in yours. One of the funniest movies I can ever remember. A complete screwball comedy slash whodunit that's set in a scary mansion in the 1950s, has all of the tropes and stereotypes of a murder mystery. Mr. Body, (laughs) not so subtle, is murdered. And the dinner guests which is this amazing all-star cast, are left to figure out who did it. And when this was released in theaters, and remember, you have to say 
who did it and with what and where. <laughs> there were these different endings that uh, were kind of tacked on to the end of the movie. So the goal was that you would spend lots of money and go to all the different versions of the movie to see the different endings with different murderers. I can't for the life of me understand why, but Clue this movie actually ended up being a box office flop. <laughs> Clearly, the public had no taste. But Clue has developed a cult following with the home release where all three endings appear. a lot of movies in this category that don't initially get a good launch but over time tend to grow on people and I think sometimes the effect of good soundtrack can help in that endeavor. In this case the music was by composer John Morris, super witty soundtrack. He was a frequent collaborator with Mel Brooks, another one of our favorites, including work on The Producers, Blazing Saddles, again, probably number one on your list, Lois. <laughs> oh, isn't it in the great movie Pantheon? It's, it's always there. Above Citizen Kane, of course. He also wrote for Young Frankenstein, or is that Frankenstein? And Spaceballs, of course, starring Pizza the Hut. He wrote a beautiful, beautiful, stunning score to The Elephant Man in 1980 as well. So the Clue soundtrack is a complete parody of the horror genre cliches and psychological thriller expectations. The main title is super quirky, very clever, and the soundtrack itself pokes fun at decades of horror movie techniques. Lots of string tremolos and diminished seventh chords and jump scares as we navigate this bizarre whodunit with all these funny characters. Scott, we should mention that Clue features some knockout lines, including one of the most famous improvs in film history. Tell us about it. This is the absolute best line. I really need it on my ringtone. But in one of the endings, I'll just give a little spoiler. Mrs. White, who's played by Madeline Kahn, explains her motives for murdering the maid, Yvette, in this very famous flames on the side of my face scene. Yes, I did it. I killed Yvette. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths. The brilliant, incomparable Madeline Kahn in an improvised meltdown, which apparently had to be reshot multiple times because the cast and crew were unable to contain their laughter. You know, she was Mel Brooks' favorite leading lady. She was unbelievable. And you can actually tell during the scene, they have to make so many cuts and you can still see Martin Maul and Tim Curry just on the edge of losing it. She was just a genius. I miss her so much. I know. And a very accomplished soprano. She had an exquisite voice. Pixar Animation Studios released Coco in 2017. A 12-year-old Mexican boy named Miguel accidentally crosses over to the land of the dead because his shoemaker family will not allow him to become a musician. Miguel enlists the age of his late great-great-grandfather, to return him to his family and follow his dream. 
I thought Coco was a really successful film in all different kinds of ways. It is certainly richly animated in the tradition of Pixar and has terrific music. It actually almost became a full musical, but it ends up being a movie with songs in it. So there are these terrific tunes by Christian Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez of Frozen fame and a really effective soundtrack by Michael Giacchino. It has a set of rich substantive characters which is not impossible for animation and seems to offer a really meaningful way for children to process death and to remember loved ones who have passed on in fact the big hit from coco is remember me yes and scott one of the things i most admire about coco is that it appears to be a loving tribute to Mexican culture rather than a stereotyped or valiant effort with unhelpful cultural attribution. Yes, I agree. Hollywood certainly has problems with race and gender and kind of the portrayal of culture in general. And I think Michael Giacchino, I have to just tip my hat to him. He did such a lovely job of bringing authentic, rich tradition of Mexican music into the soundtrack without over Hollywoodizing it. We hear authentic Mexican combinations of instruments like guitars and marimbas. We hear pan flutes and violins and styles of music like flamenco and mariachi and even a few folk instruments blended in. But mostly what we hear is this really sensitive scoring that enhances every aspect of the characters and the story that's going on. An emotional highlight for me is Crossing the Marigold Bridge, a beautiful piece of music unto itself, but also super effective as Miguel views the land of the dead for the very first time. Crossing the Marigold Bridge from Coco, music of Michael Giacchino. Well, this isn't technically Halloween, but Miguel's adventure takes place during Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. It's a sweet film with a really powerful score by Michael Giacchino. One of your all-time favorites. Yeah.
It's Hocus Pocus. This movie has emerged as one of the favorite kids' Halloween movies and a cult classic since its lackluster premiere in 1993. Go figure that one. Can't, what? <laughs> it's another one that didn't start out brilliantly, but is now a favorite. What? What's with people? Where? Where's the <laughs> sense of humor? We need to be on some kind of critics committee. No, it's about time. Doubt. <laughs> Kenny Ortega directed this comedy horror classic, which stars no less than Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Kathy Najimy as the wild and wacky Sanderson sisters, three witches who are brought back to life in 1990s Salem, Massachusetts. This is, again, one of the goofiest movies out there, but it is so fun, and I can't just be scrolling on the television and bump into it and not sit down and enjoy it. This movie, oddly enough, did not have an official soundtrack release until late 2013. That's when Entrada Records, who publish a lot of soundtracks, assembled a special edition. The composer on the job for Hocus Pocus was John Debney. This is one of Hollywood's most versatile composers for movies, TV shows, and video games. We know his music from tons of productions like Bruce Almighty and Elf, Spy Kids, even Princess Diaries. The music in Hocus Pocus is spooky, it's fun, it's magical. It's this perfect balance between scary and a lighter comical feel as the bumbling witches make their way through the film. You actually don't need to download the soundtrack because the odds are that during the month of October, you can actually just turn on your television and it's probably going to be on, usually on Freeform or streaming on Disney+. Plus. So a definite recommended Halloween treat uh, with a lovely soundtrack by John Debney. And... Apparently, Bette Midler recently confirmed that Disney is planning to make a sequel with Sarah Jessica Parker and Kathy Najimy. Stay tuned. Yeah, I mean, the internet, which is always right, has confirmed <laughs> this in several places. So I'm crossing my fingers that production will start at some point. But these three are amazing in their chemistry together. And pretty amazing. Uh, Bette Midler, I think, is 74 now. So, you know, keep going. WABE Music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart. We'll return with more spooky tunes after a quick break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You're listening to City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for joining me. Let's return to my conversation with WABE music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart. We're talking about Halloween movie music. Danny Elfman has scored close to a hundred feature films since his start with movie music in the mid eighties. Back then, he was mostly known as the star of the new wave band Oingo Boingo. Since that time, Danny Elfman has crafted a unique voice in music for visual media, churning out definitive soundtracks to hits like Batman, Men in Black, and The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, I love Danny Elfman's story because it's different from so many other composers who have a more 
traditional route through conservatory and met somebody and then got into film music or maybe intentionally went into film music. But Danny Elfman certainly didn't uh, start with that as his goal. Uh, serendipitous set of circumstances that landed him uh, to be friends with Tim Burton and score Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure back in 1985. I think Danny Elfman during Halloween receives a special pride of place because of his skill in providing what we recognize as his music, very fresh, creative, original soundtracks that are flavored with irony and this wicked humor and gothic darkness, but all wrapped up in unbounded fun. And so while we recognize the Elfman sound, we're always aware of his dedication to telling the story that he's in at the current time. He uses a huge toolbox of both traditional acoustic orchestral instruments and is adept at wielding contemporary electronic overlay as well. I think Danny Elfman is the master composer of combining comedy and horror and fantasy all into one big fun ride. Indeed. Frankenweenie from 2012 is a black and white stop action horror comedy film based on Tim Burton's short from 1984, A Young Victor. Frankenstein <laughs> brings his deceased pet back to life, and then chaos ensues when Victor's friends start resurrecting other dead animals in the neighborhood. It's actually a very sweet and funny story. I love it. I want it to be true. Yeah, right. Elfman's Frankenweenie score is mostly woodwinds and strings. So it sounds a little different than the standard. If you think of just the Simpsons soundtrack, it's a much quieter and more subdued soundtrack. And most of it crafts the relationship between young Victor and his dog, Sparky. I think the effect is really beautiful and artistic and touching. main titles from Frankenweenie by Danny Elfman. This is a soundtrack that is sweet and personable and always engaging through the entire film. After the success of Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice was Tim Burton's first big box office success in 1988. Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis play the part of Ghosts, who are haunting their former residence. And Michael Keaton plays Beetlejuice, a poltergeist who attempts to frighten away the new residents. And this is another great all-star cast. And I can't think of another word other than zany to describe this entire movie and its soundtrack. If you kind of just watch down the middle movies most of the time and then you watch Beetlejuice it's like watching a car wreck you just don't know what's going on uh, but it's a super fun and interesting film Danny Elfman had scored Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure for Burton in 1985 but this Beetlejuice was only his sixth film that he had done and in many ways the sounds in Beetlejuice are the ones that we today identify as quintessential Danny Elfman 
all wrapped up in the soundtrack. There's gigantic Hollywood orchestra, lots of electronics, theater organ, and these wacky, aggressive polkas and waltzes and tangos and circus band music all in one soundtrack that works in a very unified way. Here's the opening of the main titles. Edward Scissorhands was Tim Burton's first collaboration with the actor Johnny Depp, who plays an artificial human with scissor blades instead of hands. It was released in 1990, and it was both a critical and financial success. This was a movie that did get a, a good start and has stayed popular. The story itself takes place during Christmas. It is kind of interesting to me that there are so many movies now that have a dichotomy relationship of Christmas and Halloween. Very interesting. But there's a gothic element to this movie. And the bigger theme is the idea of the, the Frankenstein theme, which is the misunderstood monster that serves us well during this time of year. This movie is often cited by both Tim Burton and Danny Elfman as one of their favorite achievements in collaborations. This is kind of a magical fairy tale that takes place in the suburbs, has deep heart, and Really, there's no better musical cue in the entire soundtrack to tug at your heartstrings than the ice dance when Edward is carving a lovely ice sculpture outside in the shape of Winona Ryder's character, causing it to snow. Elfman pulls out all the stops of the instruments of magic, the harp, the celesta, and of course, high voices singing in the background, combining for a really heartrending and soulful scene. Mm -hmm. 
Music of Danny Elfman from his score to Edward Scissorhands. Tim Burton's 1993 hit, The Nightmare Before Christmas, has emerged as an annual favorite, combining the gothic thrills of Halloween with the sparkliness of the Christmas season. This macabre stop-action thriller chronicles the kidnapping of Santa by the inhabitants of Halloween Town and their mayor, Jack Skellington. And this, I think this is one of the best collaborations between Tim Burton and Danny Elfman. It's actually a 10-song musical with a pretty complex and sophisticated non-diegetic or offstage orchestral background soundtrack by Elfman. He places his unmistakable signature of wacky, madcap comedy combined with this lyrical, dark, melancholy Halloween music. And he actually performs as a singer in much of the soundtrack. Here's a little bit of the cue called Christmas Eve Montage. Music from The Nightmare Before Christmas, scored by Danny Elfman. A brilliant soundtrack with strong themes that color the tone of the entire film. It never really allows it to go off the rails by being too crazy or too dark, but finds a really beautiful balance. Highly recommended listening. Vince Garaldi Sextet performing the Great Pumpkin Waltz from It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, made in 1966. You know, we hear this tune for the first time when Linus is writing the Great Pumpkin at the opening of the story. And I don't know, Lois, if it's the same thing for you, but when I hear this music and hear this just texture of the Vince Garaldi Sextet, uh, it's like an instant time warp for me. It throws me back into growing up days and, oh, it must be fall. It must be Halloween. This music, which is highlighted in this case by this very forlorn, lonely flute and these chilly piano runs, seems perfectly evocative of fall and very pleasant memories of Halloween's in the past. Mm. The Peanuts signature tune, Linus and Lucy, that we all love, also appears regularly in this episode. And amazingly, this full soundtrack from 1966 was not released as an album 
until 2018. So you can now check it out on your favorite streaming service. Go figure that one out. John Williams is probably best known for scoring sci-fi fantasy and action-adventure. He tackled some quasi-horror in 1987 in The Witches of Eastwick. This fantasy comedy was directed by George Miller and starred Jack Nicholson, Cher, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Susan Sarandon, all based on the novel by John Updike. I'm always delighted to hear John Williams soundtracks that are not necessarily from the Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark type genres because he's so talented and he has skills that kind of cover the spectrum of different film genres. And this is back in the 80s. Like this is a while back, a pretty dark comedy, which like Hocus Pocus is based on the tale of three witches. In this case, they're battling the devil. And John Williams did receive one of his many Oscar nominations for best original score for this movie. The soundtrack is anchored around this recurring theme, which is set up in The Devil's Dance, which was originally titled The Dance of the Witches. This is a pretty bouncy and mischievous tune that's reminiscent of a Tarantella or even a modern version of Saint-Saëns' Danse Macabre. Here's the Boston Pops playing a little bit of The Devil's Dance from the Witches of Eastwick. John Williams arranged a version of The Devil's Dance for violinist Anna-Sophie Mutter. Here she is with the composer conducting the Vienna Philharmonic.
from the 2020 release, John Williams in Vienna. That was the composer's own arrangement of The Devil's Dance from The Witches of Eastwick. Anna-Sophie Mutter was the soloist with the Vienna Philharmonic. That CD release is fantastic. It has a lot of familiar music, but arranged for violin and orchestra. So I highly recommend that for your listening list as well. Well, this year, as you said, Lois, is a little different, but hopefully we can all enjoy some good viewing and good listening with friends and family to celebrate the Halloween season. I hope this is a fun list for you, and it's a little bit less spooky than our average Halloween horror tracks. Stay safe, stay healthy, and have a happy Halloween. Oh, Scott, thank you so very much. May all of the candy you receive be delicious and chocolate. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Dr. Scott Stewart is WABE film music commentator and host of Strike Up the Band. He's on the music faculty at the Westminster Schools and conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony. From Pitcher's Mound to a Painter's Easel, Richard Sullivan has had an interesting career. The Louisville, Kentucky-born artist was a professional baseball player with the Atlanta Braves. Since 2014, he has devoted all of his time to painting. Richard Sullivan joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here. So which came first, your interest in sports or art? I would say in my interest in sports, but you know, whenever I was outside, I would pick up a baseball and whenever I was inside, I would pick up a pencil and start drawing. So they were always very much connected when I was younger and I was always in art class at school. So, but I never knew what I wanted to do with art. I always knew I loved baseball and knew that that was like where I was excited about. Well, does it bother you that people think it's unusual for an athlete to enjoy art or to be an artist? I have a friend who is a former NBA player. He's a wonderful artist, and he likes to write as well. And, you know, people respond as though that's something alien. I mean, aren't there both parts of your brain or the way you approach creativity that would apply to both sports and art? Oh, absolutely. Especially when I was younger, I was very much in the mode of, I wouldn't talk about my artistic ability or my creative, whatever I was doing in the art class. I would never talk about it to my my athlete friends because there's always a stigma around being an artist and, and an athlete. And I think I was always very confused growing up as to what I was supposed to be doing or how to feel about having both of these talents, I guess. And um, it was only until later in life that I discovered like it's so connected and so intertwined in my process in my life. And what I learned on the baseball field and, and playing sports my whole life, I've taken and used as an artist and especially in watercolor as a painter now. I get the same feelings I did while painting when I was playing. And I discovered that much later in life. But it's it's amazing how many athletes are coming out and expressing themselves creatively and and not ashamed to to say that anymore because I think they're especially growing up in high school, there was such a stigma for me. And conversely, there was also the stereotype of a dumb jock, which isn't fair either. Things are a little better now. Would you tell us about your history with the Atlanta Braves? Yes. Well, I had the good fortune of finding the Savannah College of Art and Design in Savannah, Georgia, and they had a baseball team. So I got a scholarship to an art school for baseball. So that was like the first time in my life, like kind of the universe aligned and like I was meant to be there, you know. 
And I played three years at SCAD and my junior year, I was having a great season. I really was coming into my own as a pitcher. I was a left-handed pitcher and really just kind of my confidence and my ability all connected at once. And I had this amazing season and, and scouts started to come to my games. And, you know, growing up, I didn't really know what baseball was going to do. I was just having fun with baseball. I loved pitching. I loved being on the field and I always just wanted to reach my full potential. That's all I, I told myself. You also had then six years with the Braves and went back to finish your degree at SCAD in 2014. Were there skills you picked up or elements of the game that helped in your art career? Oh, absolutely. Everything I've learned on the baseball field, I've translated. You, you can look at any type of like talent skill, like whether it be painting or playing music or playing a sport. There's a structure that sports lend themselves well to, to other creative aspects because I practice every day. I train, you know, my body in my mind. And I think if you translate those skills to being an artist, you, you can practice even longer as an artist. You can develop your skills even longer because your body doesn't take a toll on it. So I think when I first got out of playing baseball, I was like so inspired by learning again. And, and at the end of baseball, I was very much mentally taxed. I was stressed out all the time. I was like putting so much pressure on myself to reach that next level. And I think art allowed me to decompress in a way and use another skill that I've, I never really felt like I developed. So I think I was just really inspired to, to work really hard and put all my energy that I was using in baseball, I, I put it back into my art. You have enjoyed recognition within sports-related venues, although your art is not exclusive to sports pictures. But I was hoping we could talk a bit about some of those. You have work in the permanent collection of the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, the Yogi Berra Museum, the Louisville Slugger Museum, and of course, proud Kentuckian that you are, the Kentucky Derby Museum. What have been some of the highlights of sports-related commissions you've received? You know, when I was first starting out, I didn't really know what was going to happen. I just was painting. I loved process of watercolor, and I, I would reach out to all of these companies and, and um, the Baseball Hall of Fame certainly was, that was the highlight. That was when I first realized like, wow, like I might be able to do this. I was excited to hear back from someone, you know, I was excited that they answered my email and that, that led me to the next email, you know, and I think there's all these small wins at the beginning that helped solidify my momentum. And, and I think of the very beginning, my mind was with the Braves, like the Braves were building a new stadium. And I was reaching out to them every three or four months. And I had some really great connections there and some great friends from my playing days that were in the front office. So my goal and my vision, like what, what drove me forward for two or three years was I wanted to, to have my work in the, in the stadium. I wanted to paint for my old team, you know, and I think the biggest like full circle moment for me was painting 18 paintings for their new stadium and, and just being a part of that process and seeing baseball from a different angle, I guess, and, and really them accepting me again. I, I didn't get to the big leagues. I didn't help them win the, win the championship, but I, you know, I was a part of their, their stadium. And I think that was really special. They commissioned 18 original watercolors and 20 prints. Can you tell us the subjects of some of those? We, we collaborated. There was this amazing back and forth at the beginning. They've won three World Series in their time as the Braves, uh, one in, in Boston and one in Milwaukee and one in Atlanta. So we, I came up with the, these five different paintings for each World Series win and wanted to tell the story of each win. And so that that was 
15 of those paintings were, were of the World Series in each era. Did you do a painting of Hank Aaron? I did, yes. I've done a few paintings of Hank Aaron and, you know, just to be able to create a painting of Hank and how important he is. I think sports transcend so many different things and that's what's so special about Hank and he's just this icon in so many different realms. We'd be remiss not to talk about your recent work for the Kentucky Derby and I should add for Woodford Bourbon, which is a very nice drink. Would you talk about those? That was an amazing project. So three or four years ago, I met the brand director for Woodford. And I think I mentioned in passing, I was like, oh, I'd love to do the bottle someday. And they, I guess they've been keeping an eye on me. And as far as a Kentuckian and, and being from Louisville, like growing up, and I understood how important the Derby was to our state and our city, but I didn't realize like the full scope of it until I was an adult. So, you know, a small part of of that celebration and, and a part of Woodford's design and them having the confidence in me as a painter to execute what they wanted. And I'm extremely proud to work with them. Former baseball pitcher and current day artist, Richard Sullivan. To see examples of Sullivan sports related artwork, go to our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org.